Broadcasting live from our satellite studios in Dallas, Texas, it's time for the special on-the-road edition of Learning Insights, featuring learning professionals who are improving performance and driving business results. And we are back. Stone Payton, Lee Cantor. We got Julia back in the studio, the satellite studio for Training Pros Dallas. We have had a uh, pretty good lineup all That's day right. long today. A lot of all-stars. This has been a fun day, and we've had a lot of fantastic conversations about virtually any discipline domain you can think of with regard to training, development, learning. Uh, but this is going to be no exception. This is I'm a guy. excited. He's been there, done that. He made the T-shirt. Uh, he's retired now, but he's uh, worked for some uh, very uh, reputable organizations, I would say. And uh, his name is Jim Biggerstaff. And among other things, we're going to talk a little bit about a topic he has a, a bit of knowledge about, retaining good employees. Welcome to the show, Mr. Biggerstaff. How are you? Well, I'm great. Thank you for having me. So retaining good employees is uh, important, but also getting rid of bad employees. You want to talk about that? <laughs> we can go there. It's a necessary evil. How, how do you um, pick the right employees? You know, I know it's important to retain the good ones, but isn't choosing the right ones important? Well, absolutely, and I think that's the starting point. I, I coined a phrase a number of years ago, uh, almost a battle cry, and it is go to the well three times every day, hire well, train well and treat well mm -hmm. and it's like a three-legged stool that hire well is just fundamental of determining what your business needs and getting the right people on the bus I'm amazed at how many people are very poor interviewers and really are not good at selecting the right talent so hiring is getting the right people through the gate on the, in the right seat in the right bus the first time now how important when you're hiring is culture versus skills well, in HR lingo, there's always uh, the can-do, the will-do, and the good fit. Can-do or the skills and experience, will-do certainly is the attitude and the motivations and the drive, but good fit. Uh, a lot of executives fail because they are simply not a good fit. Mm -hmm. So I think it's critical to really get all three of those components right. Can-do, can will-do, and good fit. Now, how do you, how do you know if someone's going to be a good fit? Can you kind of shake that out in the interview process? Well, I think you need to know carefully who the hiring manager is going to be. Who is the supervisor? Who is that candidate going to report to? And you need to know uh, sort of the idiosyncrasies of that hiring manager pretty well and know exactly what type of fit might be successful or not successful. And that's where I think a really good recruiter, good at their craft, has to, to match the skill set. If someone's tough to work for, you don't want to hire a really thin-skinned candidate right. to work for them. That's that's, <laughs> that's, uh, that's not a match. <laughs> right. That's that's a, a formula for failure. Now, um, did you guys have at your last organization or your last few that you worked with? Did you have a, a very structured, uh, I don't know, process methodology for the hiring manager to come to you to help them articulate what they really needed and wanted? I'm asking because. It occurs to me that I might have the best motivation uh, and uh, intention in the world, but if I came to you and tried to describe to you what I wanted, I wouldn't be necessarily very good at it because I don't hire very. He'll often. know it when he sees it. You know, like I don't know. You know, I don't know, Jim. Just bring some folks in here. I'll let you know when it's. I mean, did you ever run into some of that? Well, I I think way too many people try to hire just on gut feel, and and gut feel is important, but I think there needs to be a very careful. Uh, analysis or diagnosis. What does the job 
need to be or the candidate need to be highly successful and then you can build uh, I think a very structured interview based on those skills and build some behavior oriented questions that really drill down on those skills now I came from a large retail employer and out in the store organization the human resource and training team built a very good structured interview that was almost cookbook and that would help a store manager uh, follow a structured guideline for the interviewing process mm -hmm. and hopefully make a better decision. And we also used a structured approach to uh, hiring managers because there were there were several thousand of store managers. Now, when you get into professional jobs, let's just say a financial analyst, right. then we don't hire enough of those people every year to, to have a real structured interview, but we do a lot of training to teach hiring managers and supervisors how to do better interviews. So some are quite good at it. I am amazed in my career how many people are just really not good interviewers. <laughs> now, how do you get around the, well, my nephew needs a job. Take a look at him. Well, I would, I would always, uh, I always try to help people I know, and I would take a look at the resume and, and often provide feedback if their resume was good, bad, or otherwise needed to be improved. And uh, I would shop them around if I thought there was something we might be able to use. If not, I was just brutally honest and say, uh, Southern term, this dog's not going to hunt. I just, <laughs> I just don't have something there for you. But you wouldn't dismiss it out of hand just because my nephew might be a perfect fit. Uh, I, I would right? never dismiss so it. So it's out not of a hand. knockout factor for no, you. No, it's life's just... all about relationships. And, right. you know, I, the people that I know and trust and value, I do everything I can to help them. So now getting back to the topic of retaining good employees, are there, um, how do you identify the ones that are the high potentials and the good employees? Well, I, I think it comes down to setting very clear expectations on what you expect of people. And again, this hire well, train well, treat well, good training, a piece of that is, is be sure they're trained well, and that's equipping people to be successful to be successful mm -hmm. and then you just set I think high goals and uh, you hold people accountable uh, to reaching those goals and uh, you coach them in uh, along the way and mentor them uh, and provide them constructive feedback on how they're doing good or bad mm -hmm. most people want far more feedback good or bad than they ever get and so uh, you think that's a, so yeah. set high goals and some people will achieve it or not and you help those that you can but when you you've been reasonable and patient and uh, constructive coaching and they still don't make the mark meet the objectives then it's time to uh, make a change but when you're dealing with, so you, you mentioned that people want more feedback than maybe interest they they get you uh, find in, that to in, be so? in my career in HR I've found uh, even good performers want that validation from the boss that they're that they're on the right track or if they're not most people are self-motivated and want to know if they're off track so they can get on track unfortunately too many managers wait till there's a real problem festering and then uh, the worst thing I think anyone in leadership could do is blindside somebody right there should be no surprises Mm -hmm. on how somebody is fair because the employee they want clarity in terms of what they're doing they want to know if they're doing a good job and you know it's not like they're trying to not do a good job so there has to be clarity in what they're supposed to be doing well clear definition on the uh, priorities and the expectations and then what are the metrics uh, how of you success, judge success right. the kpis for success 
and uh, and then feedback when they're off course and mm -hmm. how to self-correct. And then, so what is the rhythm of feedback? Like, is that a weekly, monthly? How, how do you go about creating structure around the feedback cycle? You know, uh, I, I think it needs to be a good balance of formal and informal. Too mm -hmm. many times companies, leaders default to only the annual performance right. appraisal. That's ridiculous, right? That is that is ridiculous. Uh, the uh, uh, One of the large research uh, companies does a annual uh, survey of morale and engagement, uh, engaged employees. In different and, companies? Uh, they, they survey about 150,000 workers every year. Wow. And one of the questions based on their research that is a telltale indicator of engagement, one of them is, have you received constructive, positive feedback for doing a good job in the last seven days? Wow. So I think that tells me something that that people need mm -hmm. regular, immediate feedback. And remember, positive reinforcement just motivates people to keep doing those good things right. on and on. So I think uh, one of the things management in corporations can do is lavish praise and recognition on people when it is earned and deserved. And that's a good mixture of formal and informal. So uh, I think about that, that criteria, that weekly. Does somebody recall, top of mind, having good feedback on their performance in the last seven days? I think there's a nugget to remember there. <laughs> so now, is there any uh, differences on the way that uh, companies should uh, handle the younger people than the older people when it comes to that? You know, I, I, I think there's such a hunger for praise and recognition. You know, most research studies will show praise recognition uh, for doing a good job is a number one motivator far more than pay and other things so i think that applies uh praise and recognition at all levels mm -hmm. uh young people early in their career right out of college maybe need a little more to be sure they're on track mm -hmm. uh, they're still trying to acquire some organizational maturity sure. <laughs> of what does and doesn't work mm -hmm. uh, versus idealism so uh, i don't think there's a vast difference based on age or gender all right, so while you're hunting and fishing, you've left us with the rest of this. What kind of things can we uh, be anticipating? Or, you know, you got a, a really uh, large population of baby boomers. We know that there's a little bit of a gap in people coming up, and uh, particularly in the uh, females in the STEM careers. What are some of these things we're going to have to deal with, and what, how should we be dealing with them? Or are you going to still help us? You're going to come back, and you're not going to hunt and fish mm -hmm. the whole time. No, not. Uh, I'm happy to come back if invited. <laughs> uh, you know, I think there's a there's a couple of trends going on right now in uh, in the United States. Uh, this is no surprise. You read about it. Baby boomers like me are retiring in droves, and I think companies need to be accurately identifying their needs. Who's going to be leaving? And and what are the gaps that may be in the next one to three years and how to how to close those gaps. And what are they taking with them? Look at the knowledge that's walking out the door. I mean, we need some way to, to harvest that knowledge before they, I mean, well, when they I th walk out the door, right? I, I think you just have to build understudies and you have to determine what institutional knowledge is either needed going forward or obsolete that you don't care if you lose but uh, <laughs> well, you, have, you have to ensure that download that knowledge transfer right. that is critical and that's why you build good understudies and you put 
uh, leaders are the leaders of the future in developmental roles. And I think too many companies, I know we're zigzagging on, on categories and topics here, but too many times management development training just focus on skills training, like becoming a mm -hmm. good leader. Most executives develop experientially. Most of what they've learned is by participating in stretch projects, special assignments, often on top of their regular right. normal job. Yeah. And in a lot of research surveys, that's how executives grow and develop. So it behooves uh, leaders, uh, leadership and development training people to determine what skills are needed, what gaps exist, how to close the gaps and structure developmental experiential assignments uh, to plug for new, lower new talent to, into, right, exactly. plug lower talent into. So remember, people grow more through experiential development than just training classes. Right. If it works for the executives, why wouldn't it work for people lower? It works at all levels. Uh, right. It Absolutely. the same. So now what about the, um, the uh, shortage of STEM workers that we have in this country nowadays? Uh, I believe that is a serious shortage. Yeah. I mean, uh, everybody we've talked to that are looking for IT people, uh, they so can't just, find them. Just to clarify, mm -hmm. the STEM worker is what? Again? Science, technology, engineering, engineering and math. math. Okay. Mathematics. Sorry. Just wanted to make sure. So th this might be a controversial statement, but mm -hmm. a lot of... People will tell a college student, oh, pursue your passions, do what you love. Well, a lot of things that people love might not make them money. That's right. How many <laughs> cowboys can there be? And, uh, <laughs> and uh, so, so I think all, it all goes back almost to the high school, good counseling on what kind of jobs in the future may pay well. Mm -hmm. And we're in such an instant gratification culture. Uh, you know, if you're going to go to college, uh, it's short-term paying for long-term gain. You, you pay your dues, you have some fun, some life balance along the way, but you study and major in something that might pay you something. So mm -hmm. you get a, an ROI on uh, the cost and time right. of that college education. Especially with but college still, costing what it is now. Uh, absolutely. And so it, back to your issue on STEM, my experience lately on college campuses, about about a third of the students that I have seen in the, the STEM areas are not U.S. citizens. They're stu foreign students. Right. right. And, and I sometimes think American students are not willing to incur that short-term pain, long-term right. gain. They want the easy routes. Well, because they are hard classes. They are <laughs> tough classes. And, and I'm an HR guy, but I, I've got an engineering degree. Right. So you know how hard that I, I know how hard degree from, from a tough engineering school. Uh, so I think... I think that starts with good counseling in high school, good counseling in college uh, of what might uh, pay well and have a, a good career, and then encourage people to show them that the short-term pain is worth the gain long-term. All right, so what's next for you? What are you going to, you got uh, You got some plans for writing a book, I understand? Well, I'm, uh, I've almost finished my first novel. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fiction, Christian fiction in the future, but uh what I really want to write is a couple of books on servant leadership, and I'm oh, beginning, really? beginning to outline those. And, can you uh, talk and maybe define some terms of like what what in your mind is servant leadership, and what is the characteristics of a good servant leader? Well, I think um, I, I guess one of my favorite quotes from from Zig Ziglar is is you can get everything in life you want if you help enough people help enough other people get everything they want. So I think a servant leader really focuses on others. 
uh, whether it's the needs of the employees and the corporation, whether it's the customers. So I think you're really people focused. You focus on taking good care of customers and you focus on taking good care of employees. And, and if you do those things well and get your, get your focus off of yourself onto others and serve their needs for the business, the individual, that's what I consider a servant leader to be. Mm -hmm. Very externally focused. All right, so you're going to write a book about this. It's my plans. Yeah. Maybe several. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about the format. Are you looking at, at uh, yeah, what are you going to do? You're going to do like a, what is it? What is it how's An instructional it book or a. Well, no, I'm trying to think. Of what's the term? Like parable? Yeah, parable. That's the thing. Are you going to do something like that or are you going to do more instructional? Uh, no, I will, uh, I will probably uh, personally attempt to marry uh, together the, you know, my faith uh, in, uh, in terms of servant leadership into corporate America. So uh, I think if you take... Well, now, he was big on parables. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. The, right? ma the master storyteller. <laughs> and uh, I've known for telling a lot of long-winded stories, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, the one I'm, I'm thinking of is something along the lines of uh, live, love, give, and forgive, but put the slant in how those principles apply in one's job and one's vocation. Mm -hmm. Okay, so trying to merge some faith-based uh, concepts into the corporate w American world. And so. Jim, how do you see millennials uh, attaching themselves to the concept of servant leadership? Well, many have not even heard the concept, mm -hmm. and so one. Uh, you know, when you're when you're right out of school, you're scratching and clawing to, to get a good job. Uh, unless you're a STEM major, then you can probably get yeah, a good exactly. job. <laughs> and uh, but but they're trying to learn and get ahead. So I think millennials have a, a lot to learn in uh, organizational maturity, just the real world. And that's where good mentors and coaching can come in along the way. You know, we we joke that millennials want to be the president in their second year uh, versus, you know, paying their dues. Now, I would say, God bless them, there's some entrepreneurs out there that are multimillionaires very early in life. So with the technology of, of our country and our society, uh, great ideas can make you a millionaire early, but many of us have to work our way up the corporate ladder and <laughs> do it the good old-fashioned way. So I, so I think millennials, uh, uh, so you think they, they want, they're hungry to learn, so a corporation must throw learning at them uh, aggressively. And, and then if you don't teach them, they're not learning, they're going to leave you within a couple of years. But if you train and teach them well and you don't keep them moving up within two years, they're going to leave you anyway. So you're a bit darned if you do and darned if you don't. And I think a smart company studies their, their employees. Why do people stay? Why do they leave? Who is vulnerable? And then what are the action plans to offset uh, those that might be flight risk. Mm -hmm. And I always advocate, like in sports, identify your franchise players, your talent, and just take exceptionally good care of those. And, and maybe a few so-sos, you allow them to uh, go their way, <laughs> vote with their feet and walk away. So now, um, if if someone, a young person, uh, is interested in learning and development, are there any resources you would recommend if they want to learn more and stay on top of trends and, and um, you know, being best in class? Well, in, in learning and development, the, uh, you know, what has, has evolved even the last 20 years is 
with the search engines uh, being Google and Safari and, and Bing and all of these, uh, you can put in topics in, in learning and development subjects and you can go out and find a lot of programs. You can go on uh, YouTube. You can just see a number of great programs. Anybody keenly interested in learning and development would be a member of uh, American Society of Training, ASTD, mm -hmm. Training and Development. And, and go to those, uh, become a member of those organizations and go to their uh, regional or national conferences and see the best of the best presentations. I have managed uh, or led the, the training organization for years of my career. And I have found that, that training professionals love talking about what they do for a living. They're good about sharing, they, right? They are they exceptionally really are. good. And so if you if you know of a company that has a, uh, a reputation of great training programs, get hold of some of the people in training, spend 20 bucks, offer to mm -hmm. buy them lunch, and pick their brains. Most of the time, they will accept and be happy to share. So so I think you, uh, you always want to find out who knows what you think is good and then uh, try to pick their brain. That's, that's just smart. Uh, I want to get your take before we wrap up uh, on this online learning versus stand-up, you know, in-person platform training. I, I get the sense that there's a time and a place for both, and maybe sometimes we let the pendulum swing too far in one direction or the other. Have, have you in your career identified that there are some particular industries or disciplines or content areas that really lend themselves to one style of delivery of training and uh, can you speak to that topic a little bit? Stone, I, I think you are exactly right. Uh, as, as technology explodes, uh, there are a lot of new products and programs on e-learning. But e-learning is not great for everything. It is not a panacea. Uh, e-learning is pretty good for imparting new information. But I've always preached to my training staff over the years, most adults... To learn something, uh, learning and training is all about BMOD or behavior modification. You learn something and then you behave differently and hopefully better. Hopefully, right. hopefully <laughs> better. <laughs> and a training program that doesn't change behavior for the better is not worth its time right. or money. Exactly. There's no efficacy. So, so e-learning is not great for everything because it's hard to build in the practice, practice, practice. In adult le learning theory, uh, most research shows adults need to practice something three to seven times before it becomes a comfortably applied new behavior. Yeah. So if you throw a lot of content at people through e-learning, show me where how you're going to develop and orchestrate the practice, practice, practice if you want it to have good efficacy in changing behavior. Mm -hmm. So th the technology is, is not... Uh, uh, a panacea for everything. So how do you get feedback? And, and sometimes a uh, good old classroom where people can interact and uh, engage with the instructor is good for some things. And, uh, and then e-learning is good. I, I know that's not a, a precise answer, but you just have to, to look at what do you want people to learn? How do you change that behavior? How do they practice, practice, practice times seven before it becomes a new behavior? Uh, there are new hybrids of e-learning, of, e of executive learning, where you might watch a video of, say, a Harvard or a Wharton professor who is, uh, who is the best of the best in that particular area, and then you might have a group of five or six, 
It might not even be in the same loca uh, location or same country. And they get together with a business case and they collaborate online or Skype at a distance, work as a team, and that's important to build the emotional intelligence to co collaborate right. as a team and develop a solution and then they have to present it. So that is, uh, that is a, a team effort done at a distance using technology, technology right. uh, and where they can interact without always seeing each other in a classroom. Right. So there's new hybrids of that really emerging uh, that, that make sense. But some things it just makes sense to have good old classroom, but not everything. Right, and they don't have to be mutually exclusive, it doesn't sound like, so some good old classroom stuff supported with some reinforcement coming to my my phone to reinforce what I learned in the classroom the other day. That's Absolutely. probably some wisdom and stuff like that. So right? so I think good programs are, are a mixture of a right. lot of different forum and media, and and I can't give you just a pat answer what works best. Right. But as I, I, I think as we evolve towards e-learning, it's not going to solve everything. I don't think the efficacy of e-learning is always the right. the answer. All right, but if we're going to keep good employees, let's just kind of bring it all back full circle mm -hmm. before we wrap. If we're going to keep good employees, we've got to provide training that is genuinely serving them, that's genuinely serving the organization, providing an ROI. Yes. Uh, what are some other high points? If we want to keep good ones, what do we got to do? Well. I have to at least share a a, a war story, a, a case. Yeah. The uh, the uh, large retailer I I joined in the, in the early '90s was running about 180 percent turnover among the uh, hourly associates Ouch. and 36 percent for the store managers. Man, and turnover is expensive. It is horribly heck, expensive. Right? I mean, and and still, most most companies haven't even estimated it. They, they manage, <laughs> they they manage their around. phone budgets <laughs> better than they do their people, <laughs> their human capital cost. But uh, so, so in my book, and, and management, executive management at the time, thought that the high turnover was because the company wasn't paying enough. And they said, well, we don't have buckets of new money. Well, my, my experience up to that point in time is pay is usually not a primary reason why people leave the company. You either stay or leave a company because you like or you dislike your immediate supervisor. Right, your boss is more of a driver. Absolutely, right? and pay is somewhere down the line. And, and so my hypothesis was that pay is not the issue, uh, that, that we need to improve the leadership, the supervisory skills of our store managers. Right. So to, uh, to, to prove or disprove my hypothesis, whether it's pay <laughs> or, or, or poor supervision, I created exit surveys. We mailed everyone that left voluntarily. I got between 15 and 30 percent back. And it, it listed multiple reasons, and people could list up to three to five reasons that influenced them to leave. And, and I kept that process up for 20 years. And, and over a 20-year... Wow. You had some serious data. Over, over, I did. And wow. over a 20-year period, the trends almost never changed. The number one reason people left was dissatisfaction with a supervisor in a retail setting. They didn't like to schedule nights, weekends, or part-time. Pay was usually third, and then fourth, uh, battling for third or fourth place, friction with coworkers. So I proved the hypothesis that pay was not the issue. Had we poured in buckets of money, we would not have moved you the needle. You wouldn't have solved the problem. We just wasted, perhaps <laughs> wasted money. So, So my strategy then was since I had not a lot of money, new money to throw at it, how to improve leaders, how to improve the quality of first-line supervision. 
And so uh, I basically borrowed the concept from the Bible, the Ten Commandments. That's a pretty mm -hmm. good way to live our life. <laughs> but, but that's a short list of good behaviors. So we created a short list of seven behaviors. Uh, the training you director. You couldn't get to ten? You tried? I tried. <laughs> I tried. And as we, I did. I started with ten. I whittled it down to seven. My training director, uh, Frank, came up mm -hmm. with uh, a, a good label. We called it the Code of Good Leadership. Uh -huh. And we established these seven very actionable, specific behaviors that all leaders in the corporation should follow anywhere from first level supervision up to executives. What's good for the goose, good for the gander. And those seven were set a good example, explain priorities and expectations clearly, train people well, listen carefully, praise good performance, provide constructive feedback and coaching, and remain calm and positive. So if you, if you and these are motherhood and apple pie, there's no rocket science in any of this, but uh, leading by example, people hate hypocrites if you don't lead by a good example. When you explain priorities and expectations, always know the good business reasons and educate people why things are expected. Train people well, equips them to be successful. Listen carefully. I, I think that's why God gave us two ears, one mouth, and we use them in that mm -hmm. ratio and don't get that backwards. Praise good performance. Number one motivator, praise and recognition. Uh, just We've talked about people want more feedback and coaching, so, so give them lots of good constructive coaching. Remain calm and positive. In my 40-something years in my corporate career, I've never needed to raise my voice. I've wanted to, but I never have. Well, that's <laughs> impressive because I've got to tell you right now, I don't know whether I needed to or not, but Lee will tell you I have. <laughs> well, we, we, uh, we launched this set of behaviors, expectations uh, to all our associates and not just to management. We trained our leaders on these principles, and then we embedded those seven principles into the performance appraisals of management to hold them accountable. So we shored this up with accountability systems. We also uh, had our employees rate their supervisors on a 180, an upward assessment. How are they doing against the code? And uh, they rated them anonymously. The score sheets came into the corporate human resources department. And we gave leaders feedback uh, where they had low scores. And if they had low scores, they could have low scores once <laughs> as we repeated the process That's again. Right. You better we have improvement. We better see dramatic and immediate improvement right. or uh, we would begin the out coaching. Mm -hmm. And uh, so out we- Out coaching, is that a thing? Coaching yeah. out. Did you just make that up? I just made that up. <laughs> I like it. No, I think out it's- coaching. <laughs> and uh, the HR staff was involved uh -huh. in, the, in, the, in uh -huh. the performance improvement. And, uh, and then we created uh, one thing that was new. Obviously, we continued to look at the traditional turnover rate. We created a new metric, uh, as, and I called it the retention ratio. You know, any, any corporation needs to retain people at least through their learning curve. And a lot of times you could say a professional like an engineer or accountant needs to be at least there a year until they've broken even. Right. Uh, this particular company where I put this in place, we considered our service associates at the store, six months. If, if they had been with the company more than six months, uh, and that would be specific to any, either, any company, uh, we measured the percentage of the employees that had more than six months service. And uh, at the time we started, we were about 50%. 
but that meant that 50% of our population that's facing the customer had less than the time and experience to be proficient. Mm -hmm. So over time, we drove it up closer to 70, but that still meant 30% right. were in the steep learning curve. So we put it in the bonus program, we put it on the appraisals, we made it accountable. When people had uh, supervisors needed to improve, they had to write an improvement plan and post it on the wall for their staff to see. That was pure accountability. That was my behavior contract with the people that I lead. So, uh, and then this is where I came in my battle cry, hire well, train well, treat well. And uh, we needed to do all three of those things exceptionally well. You hire good people, you train them well. If you treat them poorly, they're gonna leave, they're gonna vote with their feet and fire you. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the structured interview guides to help in the recruitment process. So the results over time, we cut this high rate of turnover in more than half. Wow. For both the uh, the managers and uh, the hourly associates, and uh, you know, one of the things I did, I I, I did some estimates of, of the cost of turnover in this particular organization. Realistically, after we cut the turnover in half, the turnover costs were still fifteen, ten to fifteen million dollars, and that was conservative a year. Wow. So they're big bucks. So so. Uh, then, the, to me, the proof in the pudding was uh, in our annual employee surveys of morale and engagement on a five scale, our surveys averaged just over four. Wow. So four out of five, that's a very high score for thousands of people. Yeah. So I, I think we made a big difference and it was all about improving the way leaders interact and react and, and lead their people. So right. get that right, that's a big driver. And it impacts the bottom line, that's for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> Not just a little bit either. I mean, you're talking about millions of dollars. All right, I wanna make sure before we go that our listeners know how to get in touch with you. I want them to be able, uh, when your books come out, to get a hold of them. Can we leave them with an email address or some way to, to contact you? Sure, my email is, uh, it's all lowercase, one word, Jim Bickerstaff, spelled just like it sounds, at verizon.net. All right. Well, this has been a lot of fun, man. Thank we, you. It has been has been enjoyable. Well, we said at the top of the program that it was going to be an exciting and informative edition. And it was. And it was. Yeah. It was. And we got to have you back. And when your book comes out, uh, or we get close to releasing your book, we want we want to talk to you. About oh, it that. would be my pleasure. All right. For Lee Cantor, this is Stone Payton. We will be back in a few from Training Pros Dallas. This has been a special Business Radio X production brought to you by Training Pros, your source for local learning and development experts. Learn more at training-pros.com.